Time it! Hey there, how is everyone? Stuck in front of a laptop with zero motivation? I'm sure it's not just me, right? Welcome to Time In, a podcast with a researcher's take on live action roleplay. I am Anna Millen and I'm the erstwhile researcher in all of this. So today I'll try to explain my research, how LARP fits into it, and will hopefully dispel any doubts about me secretly being a spy or something. I'd like to preface this with a little shout out to all of the students and people in academia and just generally people who are still doing work over the lockdown period and struggling with staying focused. I get you, I really do. Over the past month, I've mostly stared listlessly at my notes and occasionally poked the books on the shelf. And where I'm going with this is that this is normal. It's just your brain's response to a very stressful, unprecedented situation. This does not mean you love your project any less or that you are somehow an insufficient researcher. I'll link a New Statesman article in the show notes that explains it way better than I do. But effectively, our brain shuts off the region responsible for complex thought function as a stress response. Anyway, onto this PhD that I'm not writing. I'm in my second year out of four-ish, now to be extended because of the lockdown, at the University of Exeter, um, writing a PhD in English literature. As most humanities PhDs, this is a pretty solitary affair. I have an excellent supervisory team of two who guide me and I've got access to the university facilities and to other students and I can go to classes that I think will be useful, but mostly I'm just left to my own devices. At the end, I'll have 100,000 words worth of stuff, hopefully in book form, and the ability to call myself Dr. Millen. I ought to preface the rest of this episode by saying that all of my theories are very provisional And whatever I tell you now might not necessarily be true in two years when I finish. But here goes. Despite being registered in English, my PhD wears a lot of hats. And most of the hats are weird. I'm looking at speculative fiction, so fantasy and the like, from the Edwardian period until now-ish. Modern pagan literature and ritual, environmentalism, and of course, LARP. That sounds like a lot, but simply put, I'm looking at how fantasy content retells ideas about nature formed by the neo-pagan movement and what those ideas make us feel and do. The three topics, fantasy, paganism and environmentalism, are already intimately connected. Fantasy authors have championed a return to nature over industrialization since Tolkien and have associated nature with ancient pagan religions And modern pagan movements are commonly defined as nature spiritualities, placing great significance on human relationships with the natural world. And then there's LARP, an environment within a natural setting, commonly with magical components, because technically all suspension of disbelief is magical, that engages with a whole plethora of fantasy tropes and ideas. I should probably do an episode on LARP and paganism at some point later. Anyway, To focus the discussion, I'm looking at the Horned God in all of these contexts. The Horned God is one of the prevalent deities in numerous neo-pagan movements and a counterpart to the Triple Goddess. 
But he also often appears in fantasy, whether in his godly guise or as a supernatural helper or as an antagonist. Like the goddess is often associated with Mother Earth and with nature with a capital N, so the horned god is also symbolic of the natural world, but in a more aggressive way, a sort of nature red in tooth and claw. I could have looked at depictions of the goddess for this thesis, and they are more numerous, but I felt that there is still this narrative of the delicate, nurturing and all-forgiving feminine nature being oppressed by civilization and being in need of male curatorship and protection. And that is just not the narrative we need right now for two reasons. Firstly, representing nature in, as an all-forgiving motherly figure leads to the assumption that it will forgive, metaphorically of course, all that humanity throws at it. And that's the logic that got us to the brink of the sixth mass extinction in the first place. Second, the natural world isn't fluffy bunnies and lambs gamboling in the sunshine. If we, and I mean both activists and the general populace, are to coexist productively with the natural world, we need to understand what it is and that it's not nice. Its processes can't be shoehorned into human moral standards. And I feel that the horned god, from the way he's depicted in fiction, embodies the implacability of the natural world more readily than the goddess. In addition, there is a there is relatively little scholarly literature about the god, so I'm also sort of plugging the gap there. So, the horned god. He's a combination of horned or antlered male deities, mostly from across the Western world, associated with fertility, wilderness and the underworld. And this should begin to sound awfully familiar for the people of Curious Pastimes, especially in the Algaia. Yes, the hunter is a version of the horned god, precisely why I chose this system as one of my research areas. The name gained prominence off the back of the work of Margaret Murray, a 20th century Egyptologist and anthropologist. Murray is best known for her work on witches, especially her proposal that people executed for witchcraft in the medieval and early modern period were not victims of mass hysteria or actual Satanists, but the heirs of a prehistoric fertility cult, which has been Europe's secret religion for centuries. According to her, this cult had a deity, the horned god, glimpses of whom can be seen in figures like the Greek Pan, the Egyptian Osiris, and the Gallic Kernanos, and whom Christianity has corrupted into the devil. And as Maori writes, the god of the old religion becomes the devil in the new. She published three core books on the matter, The Witch Cult in Western Europe in 1921, The God of the Witches in 31, and The Divine King in England in 1954. Despite dubiousness and outright scorn for her work in the academic community, Murray's witch theory had overwhelming public success. A lot of the stock ideas about witches and witchcraft we have today can be at least partially traced back to her. Two years after the publication of The Divine King in England, Gerald Gardner, whom some may know as the father of Wicca, publishes Witchcraft Today, in which he builds on Murray's theory to claim that witchcraft, the religion, is alive and well in England and that he is one of its adherents. The publication of Witchcraft Today in 1956 heralds the emergence of paganism as an active religious movement into the public sphere. As interest in paganism and revivalist witchcraft grows over the next decades, 
fantasy authors in increasingly describe their magical worlds as being presided over by, by some kind of pagan deity of nature. And then environmental movements like the Extinction Rebellion recently have also started tapping into these links between nature, magic and spiritual comfort forged by paganism and fantasy to instill in people the importance of protecting the natural world, not just because it is a pool of material resources, but because its survival is intrinsic to our own humanity. Through all this, the Horde God emerged as a kind of figurehead of the re-enchantment of the world and the importance of nature. The way authors and readers interact with him can tell us a lot about general environmentalist sentiments and other things. So that's why I'm focusing on the Horned God in fantasy fiction as a measure of environmental awareness. But I found that books are not enough. Many of the texts that raise the question of environmental degradation sort of leave it at that. Either the threat remains unresolved or it is converted into some cosmic evil thing that requires a hero or a child of prophecy to solve it. This is not a productive way to inspire readers to engage in direct action. It leaves the rest of us who just live here and are not the chosen one, none the wiser about how our actions can make any difference. And that can lead to apathy. In the words of Gus Spess, the founder of the World Resources Institute, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address those problems. But I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. Environmental science is now faced with the question of how to get people to care enough to generate meaningful change. And maybe that can be achieved through stories. Narratives, whether they were religious or mythological, have been used to shape our attitudes to the world for millennia. So maybe we can create a story that will get people not just to realize that environmental de degradation is a problem, but also to do something about it. And in a way, that's what the PhD is really all about. And LARP is a perfect testing ground to do that, but probably not in the way you think. I am not running social simulations on anyone. But first, a little context of LARP research. Most of the research around LARP takes place in Scandinavia. So much so that Nordic LARP has become somewhat of a staple term for both highly elaborate game systems in Denmark, Norway, Sweden and Finland, and for the kinds of systems that are both gaming and research environments. Conferences like Nutpunkt, Solmokohta and Living Games exist for researchers to share findings gathered at those games. I would also be remiss not to mention such recent publications as Conference Proceedings, As LARP Grows Up in 2003, Beyond Role and Play in 2004, LARP The Universe and Everything in 2010, and also the book LARP Design, um, out last year, edited by Joanna Kolyonen and her team, which all offer really interesting insights from a researcher's point of view. And this research mostly focuses on anthropological and sociological approaches to LARP, which makes sense since roleplay is a communal activity geared towards building an imaginary society. LARP is also being increasingly being used for social modeling, running specific scenarios, seeing how players respond to them, and then extrapolating to real life. 
Alexa Clay writes in an article called Can LARP Games Bring About Social Change? And I quote, What if we had used role-playing games to model different approaches to banking and finance after the financial crisis? Or experiment with the use of cryptocurrencies? What if we used pop-up temporary realities to explore the redistribution of resources or alternatives to the welfare state? At a time of growing alienation, LARPs can help us explore communitarian possibilities. Not ready to open your relationship but interested in dabbling in non-monogamy? Try LARPing. And this is already happening, both within LARP context and outside it. Roleplay is used in military exercises, professional training and psychodrama, which is a type of trauma management. And some Nordic systems simulate possible social scenarios or are geared towards raising awareness of specific questions among the player group. While these tactics are great ways of using roleplay for social modeling and change, they can sometimes read as attempts to legitimize LARP before it can be worthy of study. And coming back to Clay's article, she also writes, in addition to the traditional Viking, vampire and zombie scenarios, LARPs have been designed around serious themes, refugee crisis, gender, homelessness, the HIV pandemic, imprisonment. As someone who cares deeply about social change and personal transformation, that was exciting to me. LARPs were said to let players experience particular emotions, to step into each other's perspective possibly even to explore artistic and political visions for new forms of society. There's this sense that LARPs based around real-world concerns are serious affairs, while playing as Vikings is decidedly not. And with it comes a sense that LARP has to have an end goal, has to teach us something, has to some, has somehow trick people into behaving a certain way while they're having fun. And that is emphatically not what I am about. Firstly, Nordic LARPs work slightly differently from LARPs in the UK. I'll get into that in more detail in a future episode. But to summarise, in Scandinavian LARPs, refs have a lot more control over the world and the characters. While in the UK, characters are entirely the player's creations, only bounded by the terms set out in the rulebook. Secondly, the UK plot writers that I've spoken to so far deeply value the non-didactic nature of LARP, they're not there to preach to the crowd, they're there to enable players to have fun. And this means that if certain agendas or ideologies make it into the game, as they invariably do, they do so on an individual initiative. And that allows me, as an observer, to bypass an annoying barrier. Environmental concerns are heavily covered in the media, and the media also guides us to certain responses about them. So when I interact with readers of environmentalist fantasy and then ask them what emotions it invokes, all too often I get stock responses like, oh, it's very sad, we need to recycle, get rid of single-use plastics and clean the oceans. And those are excellent answers, but they cannot be used to measure a person's individual emotive response because they have been preset by the media. But because LARP systems are imaginary worlds, players are much more free to explore alternative beliefs and attitudes through their characters without necessarily having to bear the responsibility for these attitudes in real life. In other words, making your character environmentally aware is always an active choice and requires quite a lot of thought. Remember how I said most LARP research approaches it through an anthropological or sociological lens? 
well, I'm trying to do something slightly different and see it as a meta text, a text that engages and comments on other texts. Look at it this way. The backbone of any system is plot, the story of what happens. It is influenced by media that plot writers consume, both overtly and covertly, and reshaped to either align with or reject that media. Players come and add to the story, shaping its development, and then they leave the field and write fanfiction, reporting their experience in textual form, and the process comes full circle. Something else I'm using to analyze LARP narratives is reader response theory, which posits that textual meanings are created by readers through the act of reading, rather than texts having some inherent and immutable meaning in and of themselves. Usually we have to infer the meaning readers create from their social circumstances. But in LARP, we can actually witness the process during play as players respond to incoming plot, thus making it real for their characters. Anyway, I got carried away with theory. What do I actually do in the field? I am a participant observer, which means I take part in a community's activities and record them and my own role in them. That's divided into two parts. To minimize breaks in immersion, I play at events, just like a regular character, noting other characters' actions, plot developments, and the general attitudes within the system. Then I have debriefing interviews after timeout, either in the field or later via audio calls. And this is an opt-in study, so unless I have actively come up to you and waved multiple pieces of paper in your face, I am not gathering info about you or reporting it without your consent. Consent is important. My informants, who have been absolutely marvellous, also have full access to their data and a right to withdraw uh, from, from the experiment until I write up. Regarding interviews, I remember when I got my ethics clearance, the committee who cleared me asked whether I should be more specific with my questions to get people to understand what I'm on about. But with LARPers, I found I never had to explain myself. Because LARPers work with so many levels of meaning, both when socialising and when playing their characters, I found they're really used to reflect on the things that inspired them and on their attitudes. So the people I have spoken to so far have been an absolute pleasure to interview. And another thing. There's something precious in seeing a person really think about your interpretation of their character's actions. The phrase, ah, I never thought about it that way, is one of the most amazing things I can hear during interviews. So I am against making LARP some sort of didactic exercise. I think players bring all the meaning and awareness and sensibility researchers might need to work with. And I'm just here to observe what people already believe about the environment and what makes them want to do something about it. And also, if they don't have an environmental component in their play, that's fine too. I hope this has uh, dispelled any doubts about my research during LARPs. Uh, this PhD is meant to be 100,000 words, and I work in chunks, so I tend to forget how much material there is already. And as, as I was writing notes for this, I was like, did I come up with all of this? That's wild. And I love this project, and I'm so deeply grateful that I have had the opportunity to do it and to talk about it, and deeply grateful to all of the players I interviewed and observed who've made it all possible. Uh, so 
yeah, it's been it's been a great couple of years, and I hope it's going to be a great couple of years more because now with the lockdown and with pretty much events being cancelled for the foreseeable future, I think what I'll do is I'll get an extension, which means I will do an extra year over the summer of 2022, which means that you get to have me for another year. Yay. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. With that, I'm going to call time out. Until next week. And remember, plot can't kill what plot can't catch. <laughs>